Accounts of Revivals by John Gillies. I'm reading about Jonathan Edwards. Holiness, as I then wrote down some of my contemplations on it, appeared to me to be of a sweet, pleasant, charming, serene, calm nature, which brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. In other words, that it made the soul like a field or garden of God, with all manner of pleasant flowers, enjoying a sweet calm and the gentle vivifying beams of the sun. The soul of a true Christian, as I then wrote my meditations, appeared like such a little white flower as we see in the spring of the year, low and humble on the ground, opening its bosom to receive the pleasant beams of the sun's glory, rejoicing as it were in a calm rapture, diffusing around a sweet fragrancy, standing peacefully and lovingly in the midst of other flowers round about, all in like manner opening their bosoms to drink in the light of the sun. There was no part of creature holiness that I had so great a sense of its loveliness as humility, brokenness of heart, and poverty of spirit. And there was nothing that I so earnestly longed for, my heart panted after this, to lie low before God as in the dust, that I might be nothing and that God might be all, that I might become as a little child. Well, at New York I sometimes was much affected with reflections on my past life, considering how late it was before I began to be truly religious, and how wickedly I'd lived till then, and once so as to weep abundantly for a considerable time together. On January 12, 1723, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God, to be for the future in no respect my own, to act as one that had no right to himself in any respect, and solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion and felicity, looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as it were, and his law for the constant rule of my obedience, engaging to fight with all my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. But I have reason to be infinitely humbled when I consider how much I have failed of answering my obligation. I very frequently used to retire into a solitary place on the banks of Hudson's River at some distance from the city for contemplation on divine things and secret converse with God and had many sweet hours there. Sometimes Mr. Smith and I walked there together to converse on the things of God and our conversation used to turn much on the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world and the glory of things that God would accomplish for His church in the latter days. I had then and at other times the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures of any book whatsoever. Oftentimes in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt a harmony between something in my heart and those sweet and powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence and such a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in reading, often dwelling long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it. And yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonders. End quote. Thus deep and decided and powerful were the operations of divine grace upon the mind of this eminent servant of Christ, that his understanding was much enlightened in the things of God, and his heart deeply affected by them, are circumstances which will immediately strike the attention of every serious observer. There was in him a holy anxiety to obtain the most satisfactory testimony to a change of heart. For this purpose he closely and diligently examined himself. He had no inclination to shun this self-inquiry. Personal examination seems to have been considered by him as a pleasing as well as a momentous exercise. Many professors revolt at the thought of such inward survey. They content themselves with looking and that hastily at external manners, but they will not look within, though this neglect be at the peril of eternal good. 
The feelings with which men regard a duty of personal examination may justly be viewed as an accurate criterion for their spiritual state, for in proportion to their concern for eternity will be their disposition to try themselves, or in other words, in the same measure in which grace exists, will there be a desire of fully ascertaining this existence and progress. Upon a review of the statement given by Jonathan Edwards as to his early religious experience, it is evident that he was not one who could satisfy himself upon any insufficient grounds, nor a symptom of carelessness or of presumption can be discerned. He looked upon himself with a holy jealousy. He thought, he read, he conversed, and above all he prayed that he might be enabled more accurately to search his own heart, and thus escape the danger of self-deception and be convinced of proofs which would stand the test of the judgment of God that he was a child of light, a subject of holiness, and an heir of glory. Jonathan Edwards did not make it his custom to visit a lot of people in their houses unless he was sent for by the sick, or he heard that they were under some special affliction. Instead of visiting from house to house, he used to preach frequently at private meetings in particular neighborhoods, and often called the young people and children to his own house when he used to pray with them, and treat with them in a manner suited to their years and circumstances, and he catechized the children in public every Sabbath in the forenoon, and he used sometimes to propose questions to particular young persons in writing for them to answer after a proper time given to them to prepare. And putting out these questions, he endeavored to suit them to the age, genius, and ability of those to whom they were given. His questions were generally such as required but a short answer, and yet could not be answered without a particular knowledge of some historical part of the Scriptures, therefore led and even obliged persons to study the Bible. He did not neglect visiting his people from house to house because he did not look upon it in ordinary cases to be one important part of the work of a gospel minister, but because he supposed that ministers should, with respect to this, consult their own talents and circumstances and visit more or less according to the degree in which they could hope thereby to promote the great ends of the ministry. In 1734, there was a great revival of religion under the ministry of Edwards that had spread around the New England colonies. In the latter part of May 1735, this great work of the Spirit of God began obviously to decline, and the instances of conversion to be less numerous, both at Northampton and in the neighboring villages. One principal cause of this declension is undoubtedly to be found in the fact that in all these places, both among ministers and private Christians, the physical excitement had been greater than the human constitution can, for a long period, endure. Nothing, it should be remembered, exhausts the strength in the animal spirits like feeling. One hour of intense joy or of intense sorrow will more entirely prostrate the frame than weeks of close study. In revivals of religion, as they have hitherto appeared, the nerves of the whole man of body, mind, and heart are kept continually on the stretch from month to month until at length they are relaxed and become non-elastic, and then all feeling and energy of every kind is gone. Another reason is undoubtedly to be found in the fact that those who had so long witnessed this remarkable work of God without renouncing their sins had at length become hardened and hopeless in their impenitence. A revival of religion is nothing but the immediate result of an uncommon attention on the part of a church and congregation to the truth of God, particularly to the great truth which disclose the worth of the soul in the only way in which it can be saved. Whenever and wherever the members of a church pay the due attention to these truths, by giving them their proper influence on their hearts, religion revives immediately in their affections and their conduct. And when the impenitent pay such attention, the kingdom of heaven immediately suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. 
The only effectual way to put a stop to such a work of grace is therefore to divert the attention of Christians and sinners from those truths from which bear immediately on the work of salvation. A revival of religion to a minister, like the period of harvest to the husbandman, is the most busy and most exhausting of all seasons. And during the progress of that, which he had just witnessed, not only was the whole time of Mr. Edwards fully occupied, but all the powers of his mind were laboriously employed, and all the feelings of his heart kept from month to month in high and powerful excitement. In addition to his ordinary duties as a teacher and pastor, his public lectures were now multiplied, private lectures were weekly appointed in different parts of the town, and his study was almost daily thronged by multitudes looking to him as their spiritual guide. From the adjacent villages also great numbers resorted to him, for the same purpose having the highest confidence in his wisdom and experience, and numerous ministers from various parts of the country came to his house to witness the triumphs of divine grace and the gain from his counsels and his measures, more just conceptions of the best manner of discharging the highest and most sacred duties of their office. In the midst of these complicated labors, as well as at all times, he found at home one, Sarah Edwards, who was in every sense a helpmeet for him, one who made their common dwelling the abode of order and neatness, of peace and comfort, of harmony and love to all its inmates, and of kindness and hospitality to the friend and visitant in this stranger. While she uniformly paid a becoming deference to her husband and treated him with entire respect, she spared no pains in conforming to his inclinations and rendering everything in the family agreeable and pleasant, accounting it her greatest glory and that wherein she could best serve God and her generation to be the means in this way of promoting his usefulness and happiness. As Edwards was a weakly infirm constitution and was necessarily peculiarly exact in his diet, Mrs. Edwards was a tender nurse to him, cheerfully attending upon him at all times and in all things ministering to his comfort. No person of discernment could be conversant in the family without observing and admiring the perfect harmony and mutual love and esteem that subsisted between them. At the same time, when she herself labored under bodily disorders and pains, which was not infrequently the case, instead of troubling those around her with her complaints and wearing a sour or dejected countenance, as if out of humor with everybody and everything around her, because she was disregarded and neglected, she was accustomed to bear up under them not only with patience but with cheerfulness and good humor. Devoted as Jonathan Edwards was to his study and to the duties of his profession, it was necessary for him at all times, but especially in a time of revival, of multiplied toils and anxieties, to be relieved from attention to all secular concerns. And it was a most happy circumstance that he could trust everything of this nature to the care of Mrs. Edwards with entire safety and with undoubting confidence. She was a most judicious and faithful mistress of a family, habitually industrious, a second economist, managing her household affairs with diligence and discretion. She was conscientiously careful that nothing should be wasted and lost. And often when she herself took care to save anything of trifling value, or directed her children or others to do so, or when she saw them waste anything, she would repeat the words of our Savior, that nothing be lost. Which words, she said, she often thought of as containing a maxim worth remembering, especially when considering as a reason alleged by Christ, why his disciples should gather up the fragments of that bread, which he had just before created with a word. She took almost the whole direction of the temporal affairs of the family without doors and within, managing them with great wisdom and prudence as well as cheerfulness, and in this was particularly suited to the disposition as well as the habits and necessities of her husband, who chose to have no care, if possible, of any worldly business. 
But there are other duties of a still more tender and difficult nature which none but a parent can adequately perform, and it was an unspeakable privilege to Mr. Edwards, now surrounded by a young and growing family, that when his duties to his people, especially in seasons like this, necessarily occupied his whole attention, he could safely commit his children to the wisdom and piety, the love and faithfulness of their mother. Her views of the responsibility of parents were large and comprehensive. She thought that as a parent... She had a great and important duty to do towards her children before they were capable of government and instruction. For them she constantly and earnestly prayed and bore them on her heart before God and all her secret and most solemn addresses to Him. And that even before they were born, the prospect of her becoming the mother of a rational, immortal creature which came into existence in an undone and infinitely dreadful state was sufficient to lead her to bow before God daily for His blessing on it, even redemption and eternal life by Jesus Christ, so that through all the pain, labor, and sorrow which attended her being the mother of children, she was in travail for them that they might be born of God. She regularly prayed with her children from a very early period, and as there is the best reason to believe with great earnestness and importunity, being thoroughly sensible that, in many respects, the chief care of forming children by government and instruction naturally lies on mothers, as they are most with their children at an age when they commonly receive impressions that are permanent and have great influence in forming the character for life. She was very careful to do her part in this important business. When she foresaw or met with any special difficulty in this manner, she was wont to apply to her husband for advice and assistance. And on such occasions, they would both attend to it as a manner of the utmost importance. She had an excellent way of governing her children. She knew how to make them regard and obey her cheerfully without loud, angry words, much less heavy blows. She seldom punished them, and in speaking to them used gentle and pleasant words. If any correction was necessary, she did not administer it in a passion. And when she had occasion to reprove and rebuke, she would do it in few words without warmth and noise, and with all calmness and gentleness of mind. In her directions and reproofs and manners of importance, she would address herself to the reason of her children that they might not only know her inclination and will, but at the same time be convinced of the reasonableness of it. She had need to speak but once. She was cheerfully obeyed. Murmuring and answering again were not known among them. In their manners, they were uncommonly respectful to their parents. When their parents came into the room, they all rose instinctively from their seats and never resumed them until their parents were seated. And when either parent was speaking, no matter with whom they had been conversing, they were all immediately silent and attentive. The kind and gentle treatment they received from their mother while she strictly and punctuously maintained her parental authority seemed naturally to beget and promote a filial respect and affection and to lead them to a mild, tender treatment of each other. Quarreling and contention, which too frequently take place among children, were in her family wholly unknown. She carefully observed the first appearance of resentment and ill will in her young children towards any person whatever and did not connive at it, as many who have the care of children do, but was careful to show her displeasure and suppress it to the utmost, yet not by angry, wrathful words, which often provoke children to wrath and stir up their irascible passions rather than abate them. 
Her system of discipline was begun at a very early age. And it was her rule to resist the first as well as every subsequent exhibition of temper or disobedience in the child, however young, until its will was brought into submission to the will of its parents. Why? Wisely reflecting that until a child will obey his parents, he can never be brought to obey God. Before returning to Whitfield's journals, I read the remainder of Edward's personal narrative. Quote, Since I came to Northampton, I have often had a sweet complacency in God, in views of His glorious perfections and of the excellency of Jesus Christ. God has appeared to me a glorious and lovely being, chiefly on account of His holiness. The holiness of God has always appeared to me the most lovely of all His attributes. The doctrines of God's absolute sovereignty and free grace and show a mercy to whom He would show mercy and man's absolute dependence on the operations of God's Holy Spirit have very often appeared to me as sweet and glorious doctrines. These doctrines have been much my delight. God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me a great part of His glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore Him as a sovereign God and ask sovereign mercy of Him. I have loved the doctrines of the gospel. They have been to my soul like green pastures. The gospel has seemed to me the richest treasure, the treasure that I have most desired, and longed that it might dwell richly in me. The way of salvation by Christ has appeared in a general way glorious and excellent, most pleasant and most beautiful. It has often seemed to me that it would, in a great measure, spoil heaven to receive it in any other way. That text has often been affecting and delightful to me. Isaiah 32, 2. A man shall be in hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest. It has often appeared to me delightful to be united to Christ, to have Him for my head and to be a member of His body, also to have Christ for my teacher and prophet. I very often think with sweetness and longings and pantings of soul of being a little child, taking hold of Christ, to be led by Him through the wilderness of this world. That text, Matthew 18, 3, has often been very sweet to me. Except ye be converted and become as little children. I love to think of coming to Christ to receive salvation of Him poor in spirit, quite empty of self, humbly exalting Him alone, cut off entirely from my own root in order to grow into and out of Christ, to have God in Christ to be all in all, and to live by faith on the Son of God, a life of humble and feigned confidence in Him. That scripture has often been sweet to me. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory for Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake. And those words of Christ in Luke ten twenty one, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. That sovereignty of God which Christ rejoiced in seemed to me worthy of such joy, and that rejoicing seemed to show the excellency of Christ and of what spirit he was. Sometimes only mentioning a single word caused my heart to burn within me or only seeing the name of Christ or the name of some attribute of God. And God has appeared glorious to me on account of the Trinity. It has made me have exalting thoughts of God that He subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
The sweetest joys and delights I have experienced have not been those that have arisen from a hope of my own good estate, but in a direct view of the glorious things of the gospel. When I enjoy the sweetness, it seems to carry me above the thoughts of my own estate. It seems at such times a loss that I cannot bear to take off my eye from the glorious pleasant object I behold without me, to turn my eye in upon myself and my own good estate. My heart has been much on the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. The histories of the past advancement of Christ's kingdom have been sweet to me. When I have read histories of past ages, the pleasantest thing in all my reading has been to read of the kingdom of Christ being promoted. When I have expected in my reading to come to any such thing, I have rejoiced in the prospect all the way as I read. And my mind has been much entertained and delighted with the scripture promises and prophecies which relate to the future glorious advancement of Christ's kingdom upon earth. I have sometimes had a sweet sense of the excellent fullness of Christ and His meekness and suitableness as a Savior, whereby He has appeared to me far above all the chief of ten thousands. His blood and atonement have appeared sweet, and His righteousness sweet, which was always accompanied with ardency of spirit, and in inward strugglings and breathings and groanings that cannot be uttered to be emptied of myself and swallowed up in Christ. Once as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man, and His wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens, the person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, empty and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love Him with a holy and pure love, to trust in Him, to live upon Him, to serve and follow Him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature, and which have had the same effects. Often since I lived in this town, I have had very affecting views of my own sinfulness and vileness, very frequently to such a degree as to hold me in a kind of loud weeping, sometimes for a considerable time together, so that I have often been forced to shut myself up. I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than ever I had before my conversion. It has often appeared to me that if God should mark iniquity against me, I should appear the very worst of all mankind, of all that have been since the beginning of the world to this time, and that I should have by far the lowest place in hell. When others that have come to talk with me about their soul concerns and have expressed the sense that they have had of their own wickedness by saying that it seemed to them that they were as bad as the devil himself, I thought their expression seemed exceedingly faint and feeble to represent my wickedness. My wickedness as I am in myself has long appeared to me perfectly ineffable, and swallowing up all thought and imagination like an infinite deluge or mountains over my head. When I look into my heart and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss, infinitely deeper than hell. And it appears to me that were it not for free grace, exalted and raised above the infinite height of all the fullness and glory of the great Jehovah, and the arm of His power and grace stretched forth in all the majesty of His power, and in all the glory of His sovereignty, I should appear sunk down in my sins below hell itself, 
far beyond the sight of everything but the eye of a sovereign grace that can pierce even down to such a depth. And yet it seems to me that my conviction of sin is exceedingly small and faint. It is enough to amaze me that I have no more sense of my sin. I know certainly that I have very little sense of my sinfulness. When I have had turns of weeping and crying for my sins, I thought I knew at the time that my repentance was nothing to my sin. I have greatly longed of late for a broken heart and to lie before God, and when I ask for humility I cannot bear the thoughts of being no more humble than other Christians. It seems to me that though their degrees of humility may be suitable for them, yet it would be a vile self-exaltation in me not to be the lowest in humility of all mankind. Others speak of their longing to be humbled to the dust. That may be a proper expression for them, but I always think of myself that I ought, and it is an expression that has long been natural for me to use in prayer, to lie infinitely low before God. And it is affecting to think how ignorant I was when a young Christian of the bottomless, infinite depths of wickedness, pride, hypocrisy, and deceit left in my breast. I have a much greater sense of my universal exceeding dependence on God's grace and strength and mere good pleasure of late than I used formerly to have and have experienced more of an abhorrence of my own righteousness. The very thought of any joy arising in me on any consideration of my own amiableness performances or experiences or any goodness of heart or life is nauseous and detestable to me. And yet I am greatly afflicted with a proud and self-righteous spirit, much more sensibly than I used to be formerly. I see that serpent rising and putting forth its head continually everywhere all around me. Though it seems to me that in some respects I was a far better Christian for two or three years after my first conversion than I am now, and lived in a more constant delight and pleasure, yet of late years I have had a more full and constant sense of the absolute sovereignty of God, and a delight in that sovereignty, and have had more of a sense of the glory of Christ as a mediator revealed in the gospel. On one Saturday night in particular, I had such a discovery of the excellency of the gospel above all other doctrines, that I could not but say to myself, This is my chosen light, my chosen doctrine, and of Christ. This is my chosen prophet. It appeared sweet beyond all expression to follow Christ and to be taught and enlightened and instructed by Him, to learn of Him and live to Him. Another Saturday night, January 1739, I had such a sense of how sweet and blessed a thing it is to walk in the way of duty, to do that which is right and meet to be done, and agreeable to the holy mind of God, that it caused me to break forth in a kind of loud weeping, which held me some time, so that I was forced to shut myself up and fasten the doors. I could not but, as it were, cry out, How happy are they who do that which is right in the sight of God! They are blessed indeed. They are the happy ones. I had at the same time a very affecting sense how meet and suitable it was that God should govern the world and order all things according to His own pleasure. And I rejoice in it that God reigned and that His will was done. Quote. I return again to Whitfield's journals. March 30, 1740 At Savannah found myself very sick and weak in body, but with strength and notwithstanding to go through most of the duties of the day, and had taken an affectionate leave of my dear parishioners, because it appeared that Providence called me at this time towards the northwards. An unspeakable trouble of soul did I feel most part of the day, and was unable to wrestle with my Lord in behalf of the people in general, and those belonging to the orphan house in particular. Blessed be God, He has already, I trust, in a great measure heard such prayers. All things belonging to the orphan house, 
succeed beyond expectation, and some of my little flock have lately, as far as I can judge, been effectually called of God. One woman that had been a constant attender on the means of grace and thought herself a Christian for many years came to me acknowledging that she had been a self-deceiver and knew nothing of the righteousness of true living faith in Jesus Christ. A tradesman of the same stamp has felt the power of the doctrines of grace. A captain of a ship who had been a strong opposer of the truth wrote and came to me under great convictions confessing his sin and desires to be a Christian indeed. Some others also there are who have received the love of God and the truth of it, so that I hope if ten saints could preserve Sodom, the few righteous souls left behind will prevent the utter desolation of decline in Savannah. Blessed Jesus, let our extremity be thy opportunity. Philadelphia, April 14th. Oh, how did some here comfort my heart with the account of what God had done for their own and many other people's souls by the doctrine I have delivered when here last. A minister in particular, who had been made instrumental to water what God had planted, recounted to me many noble instances of God's power of free grace, shown in the conviction and conversion of some, ministers as well as common people. Oh, that the Lord may revive His work in the midst of the years. Thursday, April 17th. Preached at Abington, a district under the care of one Mr. Treat, a dissenting minister, to whom God has been pleased lately to show mercy. He has been a preacher of the doctrines of grace for some years, but was deeply convinced when I was here last that he had not experienced him in his heart. And soon after I went away, he attempted to preach but could not. He therefore told his congregation how miserable he had deceived both himself and them, and desired them to pray for him. Ever since he has continued to seek Jesus Christ sorrowing, and is now under deep convictions and a very humbling sense of sin. He preaches as usual, though he has not a full assurance of faith, because he said it was best to be found in the way of duty. I believe God is preparing him for great services. I observed the great presence of God in our assembly, and the word, as I was informed afterwards, came with a soul-convicting and comforting power to many. When I had done, I hastened to Philadelphia, where I preached to upwards of ten thousand people upon the woman that was cured of her bloody issue. Hundreds I found were graciously melted, and many I hope not only thronged round, but also touched the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Near ten came to me after sermon under deep convictions, and could tell me the time, when, and manner, how the Lord Jesus made himself manifest to their souls. What gives me greater hopes that this work is of God is because these convictions have remained on many ever since I was here last. Some of not only righteousness and peace, but also joy in the Holy Ghost. Wednesday, April 23. Reached Neshimani near three in the afternoon and preached to upwards of 5,000 people in old Mr. Tennant's meeting house yard. When I came there, my body through heat and labor was so weak and faint that my knees smote one against another and I was ready to drop down as soon as I had finished my prayer. But God was pleased to revive me. A very great commotion was in the hearts of the hearers. Great numbers were much melted. And one in particular after the sermon came to me crying, You have brought me under deep convictions. What shall I do to be saved? I gave him the apostle's answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. Upwards of fifty, I hear, have been lately convicted about this place. The Lord grant his arrows may stick fast in them till they have got a closing interest with Jesus Christ. For many, I find, receive the word with joy for a season, but having no root in themselves, soon fall away. Better were it for them that always continue thus, that they have never been convicted at all. Lord, have mercy on these and such like unhappy apostates, and let them be renewed again unto repentance. Amen and amen. New Brunswick, April 27th. 
was told last night by Mr. Gilbert Tennant of two that were savingly brought home by my ministry when here last. April 28th. Took a sorrowful leave of Captain Gladman and my dear brother and fellow traveler, Mr. Seward, whom I had dispatched to England to bring me over a fellow laborer and to transact several affairs of importance. Captain Gladman is a person mentioned in my last journal who was cast away at the Gulf of Florida and whom God made me an instrument of converting in my passage to England. Hitherto he has had the command of our sloop, but being obliged to dispatch him on business to England, have now committed the care of the sloop to his mate, whom God was pleased to bring home to himself when I was at Philadelphia last time. Not long since he was an abandoned prodigal and a ringleader in vice, but God struck him to the heart. Captain Gladman had prayed that God would send him a mate. This young man came and offered himself. The captain hired him, and I believe he is a child of God. Numbers at Philadelphia cannot but see the new creature in him. New York, April 29th. I met with Mr. William Tennant, who refreshed my heart by telling me what the Lord was doing for numbers of souls in the highlands where he had lately been. Thursday, May 1st. Went in a ferry this morning over to Flatbush on Long Island, on the east part of which God has lately begun a most glorious work by the ministry of two young Presbyterian ministers who have walked in an uncommon light of God's countenance for a long while together. Prosper thou, O Lord, more and more the work of their hands. Philadelphia, May 8th, was called up early in the morning to speak to poor souls under convictions. Their first, I think, was an Indian trader, whom God was pleased to bring home by my preaching when here last. The account he gave of God's dealing with him was very satisfactory. He has just come from the Indian nation, where he has been praying with and exhorting all he met that were willing to hear. Some of the Indians he had hopes of, but his fellow traders endeavored to prejudice them against him. However, he proposes visiting them again at the fall. Conversed also with a poor Negro woman who has been visited in a very remarkable manner. God was pleased to convert her by my preach in the last fall. But being under dejection on Sabbath morning, she prayed that salvation might come to her heart and that the Lord would be pleased to manifest Himself to her soul that day. While she was at a meeting hearing one Mr. M., whom the Lord had been pleased lately to send forth, the word came with such power upon her heart that at last she was obliged to cry out and such a greater concern also fell upon many in the congregation that several betook themselves to secret prayer. The minister stopped, and several persuaded her to hold her peace, but the glory of the Lord shone so brightly round about her that she could not help praising and blessing God and telling, and telling how God was revealing Himself to her soul. Philadelphia, May 11th. After I had taken my leave, many came to my lodgings. I believe near fifty Negroes came to give me thanks under God for what had been done for their souls. Some of them have been effectually wrought upon and in an uncommon manner. Many of them have now begun to learn to read. And one that was free, said she, would give her two children whenever I settle my school. I intended had time permitted to have settled a society for Negro men and Negro women. But that must be deferred till it shall please God to bring me to Philadelphia again. I have been much drawn out in prayer for them, and I have seen them exceedingly wrought upon under the word preached. I cannot well express how many others of all sorts came to give me a last farewell. And indeed I never yet saw a more general awakening in any place. Many of the Quakers have been convinced of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and openly profess the truth as it is in Jesus, for which I believe they will be shortly thrust out of their own synagogues. Tuesday, May 13th, preached at Wilmington. 
After a sermon, I rode towards Nottingham with Mr. Tennant, Mr. Craighead, and Mr. Blair, all worthy ministers of the dear Lord Jesus. The last has been remarkably owned of God. Many others belonging to Philadelphia accompanied us, and we rode through the woods, most sweetly singing and praising God. We were all rejoiced to see our dear Lord's kingdom come with visible power and endeavor to strengthen one another against the suffering time should come. Nottingham, May 14th. I was invited thither by some of the inhabitants who had a work begun amongst them some time ago by the ministry of Mr. Blair, both of the tenants and Mr. Cross, the last of which has been denied the use of the pulpit and was obliged to preach in the woods where the Lord manifested forth His glory and caused many to cry out, What shall we do to be saved? It surprised me to see such a great multitude gathered together in so short a warning and in such a desert place. I believe there were near 12,000 hearers I had not spoke long, but I perceived numbers melting. As I proceeded, the power increased till at last, both in the morning and afternoon, thousands cried out, so that they almost drowned my voice. Never before did I see a more glorious sight. Oh, what strong cryings and tears were shed and poured forth after the dear Lord Jesus. Some fainted, and when they had got a little strength, they would hear and faint again. Others cried out in a manner almost as if they were in the sharpest agonies of death. I think I never was myself filled with greater power. After I had finished my last discourse, I was so pierced as it were and overpowered with God's love that some thought I believed that I was about to give up the ghost. Thursday, May 15th. Preached at Fogg's Manor about three miles from Mr. Blair's house, where I was earnestly invited to come by him. And here also the Lord was pleased to cause much of His glory to pass before us. The congregation was as large as that yesterday at Nottingham. As great, if not a greater, commotion was in the hearts of the people. And Newcastle gave a word of advice and prayed with several, who came many miles under violent convictions. May 19th. On board the ship was much refreshed today by reading the journal of an Indian trader mentioned a little before, and could not but think God would open a door for preaching the gospel among the Alleghenian Indians. I wrote them a letter wherein I laid down the principles of our holy religion, told them the promises of the gospel, that it a special reference to them, and cautioned them against such things as I thought might be in hindrance to their embracing Christianity, the head or chief of them is well inclined. Charleston, July 20th. Blessed be God for sending me once more among His people. Though the heat of the weather and frequency of preaching have perhaps given an irrecoverable stroke to the health of my body, yet I rejoice knowing it has been for the conviction and I believe conversion of many a soul. Glory be to God on high. Numbers are seeking after Jesus, and two or three gracious dissenting ministers by my advice agreed to set up a weekly lecture. May the Lord be both with ministers and people and cause them to preach and hear as becometh the gospel of Christ. What makes the change more remarkable in Charlestown people is this, that they seem to be a people wholly devoted to pleasure. One well acquainted with her circumstances and manners told me more had been annually spent on polite entertainments than the poor's rate came to. But now an alteration is discernible in the lady's dress. The rooms that were usually employed for balls and assemblies are now turned into society rooms. But I hope the Reformation has went further than externals. Many who before were settled on their leaves have been gloriously awakened to seek after Jesus Christ. And many a Lydia's heart has the Lord opened to receive the things that were spoken. Indeed, the word often came like a hammer and a fire. And a door, I believe, will be opened for the teaching of the poor Negroes. 
Several of them have done their work in less time than usual, that they may come to hear me. Many of their owners, who have been awakened, resolved to teach them. Had I time and proper schoolmasters, I might immediately erect a Negro school in South Carolina, as well as Pennsylvania. Many would willingly contribute both money and land. August 24th. Being but weak in body, I have preached only once every day except on Sundays, but I hope with success. I scarce know the time wherein I did not see a considerable melting in some part or other of the congregation, and often it spread over all the parts of it. Several times I was so weak before I began to preach that I thought it almost impossible I should go through half the discourse. But the Lord quickened and lightened and supported me above measure. Out of weakness I became strong, and the Lord manifested Himself in the sanctuary. Newport, Rhode Island, September 15th. Breakfasted this morning with old Mr. Clapp, and was much edified by his conversation. I could not but think whilst at his table that I was sitting with one of the patriarchs. He is full of days, a bachelor, and has been a minister of a congregation in Rhode Island upwards of forty years. People of all denominations, I find, respect him. He abounds in good works, gives all away, and is wonderfully tender of little children. Many of different persuasions come to be instructed of him. Boston, Saturday, September 20th. Was sweetly refreshed with several packets of letters sent to me from different parts of England and America, giving me an account of the success of the gospel. September 22. Preached this morning at Mr. Webb's meeting house to 6,000 hearers in the house, besides great numbers standing about the doors. The presence of the Lord was amongst them. Look where I would around me. Visible impressions were made upon the auditory. Most wept for a considerable time, and sometimes after I received a letter wherein were these words. But what I must give the preference to was that gracious season at the new, at the new north of Monday following, where there was more of the presence of God through the whole visitation than ever I had known at one time through the whole course of my life. Justly might it have been said of that place, It was no other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. Indeed, my own soul was so deeply abased and overwhelmed with such unusual meltings that I could have been glad of some private corner in that house to pour out my soul without disturbance to the audience. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.